Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. Get ready for all the craziness of small business. It's exactly that craziness that makes it exciting and totally unbelievable. Small Business Radio is now on the air with your host, Barry Moltz. Well, thanks for joining this week's radio show. Remember, this is the final word in small business. For those keeping track, this is now show number 756. Well, I work now with a lot of small business owners that want to sell their company. But how do you maximize your return from the start? My guest is Mark Ackler, who's the managing director of Math Venture Partners. He teaches entrepreneurship at my alma mater, Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Business. Prior to math, Mark was the senior vice president of new business and strategy innovation for Redbox and was an early employee at Apple. He's the co-author of a new book. It's called Exit Right, How to Sell Your Startup, Maximize Your Return, and Build Your Legacy with a forward by one of my favorite people, Brad Feld. Mark, welcome to the show. Hey, Barry. Thanks so much. You know, I've been really looking forward to this conversation. It's always so much fun to talk to you. Me too. And any moment that I have a chance to talk about Brad Feld, I love that guy. <laughs> well, one of my favorite Brad Feld-isms, and there's many, is brutal honesty delivered kindly. <laughs> Please talk you know, to my I, wife about that, would you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, Brad's an amazing guy. And we're so grateful for him, uh, for all of his thought leadership and, uh, that, and that he was willing to, to write the foreword for the book. It really means a lot. Yeah, he's been on the show. He's wonderful. Before we talk about the new book, I want to talk a minute about Redbox and the innovation there, because certainly at the time, It was incredibly innovative to what you guys did. Tell us about how that came about. Well, actually, it's really interesting. It was a beautiful intersection for Redbox between McDonald's of all places. And so the question is like, why, why would McDonald's care about renting movies? And it turns out that there, you know, they call it day parting which is how much do you sell at each part of the day? And their breakfast business was really strong and their lunch business was fantastic. But it, the in those years, their dinner business was a little bit slower. And they're thinking to themselves, hmm, like, like how can we improve our, our traffic during the dinner hour? And they thought two things. They thought one, Uh, what do people do at home at night after work? Well, maybe they rent a movie. Could they rent a movie? Could they get the movie at McDonald's? And two, the beautiful thing about movie rentals back in the day before streaming was when you rented it, you had to return it. Mm-hmm. And if you're a retailer, that means two trips, two trips to the store. So Retailers like McDonald's and Walmart and Walgreens and Kroger and all the big grocery stores, they loved Redbox because it improved frequency. So that's how it got started. And it was a partnership with a guy named Mitch Lowe. And Mitch uh, was one of the original uh, co-founders at Netflix. And he always had this idea about vending. He loved vent automatic vending. 
And so he partnered with Greg Kaplan, who became the CEO, and that's how Redbox got birthed. I love that. I mean, I've heard that story before, but I just want you to say it one more time because we forget about these innovations sometimes. One of the things I loved about your book, it's called Exit Right, How to Sell Your Startup, Maximize Your Return, and Build Your Legacy, is that it's called Exit Right because there is an exit wrong. One of the first <laughs> chapters of the book is how fundraising impacts your exit. And a lot of oh. folks don't think that from the start. Oh, for sure. So listen, this comes from a lot of scar tissue. I've been a CEO four times. I've started a lot of businesses as an investor. I've, you know, I've invested in over a hundred companies over the course of years and multiple funds. And here's the thing. The decisions you make at the beginning of your journey have an around equity, have an outsized impact at the end of your journey. And most entrepreneurs, especially first-time entrepreneurs, really don't understand that. And so who you give equity to, uh, there's this concept of dead equity on the cap table, meaning partners who or executives who have large uh, amounts of stock and then leave the company. Uh, VCs really do not like dead equity on, on the cap table or messy cap tables. Or you know, if you pick the wrong venture partner, not all VCs are created equal. And I know that this is a very difficult time. It's much harder to raise money today than it was uh, in the past few years. But look, when you take somebody's money, you're taking their agenda. You're also taking their values. And so I've seen some great VCs who've added a ton of value and I've seen some pretty bad VCs who I'd never want to be a partner with, again, who've tanked companies. And so those decisions around equity, uh, it matters. And I, I'll make it, I'll, I'll put a, a fine point on it, which is when there is an exit, Barry, as you know well, there's something called a waterfall distribution of proceeds. Right. And with that, we all look right? at that. Right. Who's going to get and, what? Right. In simple language, that's exactly right. Who gets what? And my comment to entrepreneurs is, look, it's not how much money you raise. It's not the valuation because the higher va the valuation, that just means the more money you have to sell the company for in order for you to get whole. When there's a waterfall distribution of proceeds, what are the common shares worth? Because if the common shares aren't worth anything, what's the point? So, so those decisions you make early on really do matter. And we're seeing, at least in my experience, the common shares, a lot of times these days with uh, down rounds, when you go to sell the business, they're not worth very much. And so then you have to put the founder in the position of trying to seek some kind of carve out from the investors, right? Yeah, that's right. And and it's funny you should say that. Let's look at it from both perspectives, from the perspective of the entrepreneur and the perspective of the investor. So, yeah, so the entrepreneur, or I think of it as a pendulum. You know, the pendulum swung one way to the extreme where it became very founder friendly. Now the pendulum swings all the way to the other where the investors are getting their pound of flesh and deal terms matter like preferences, like, uh, you know, 2X, 3X preferences, dividends, 
you know, that accumulate over time, all add up, all make a difference. And all of those VCs who four or five years ago said, oh, yeah, 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 I don't I. I don't care about the valuation. I don't care about like, let's just go do the deal because it was the greater fool theory. As long as the next person down the line paid more, they were okay. Those very same VCs are are piling it on right now. They're really pushing the valuations low. They're piling on, you know, 2X, 4X. I just saw a deal with a 6X multiple. Right. Nine percent, you know, dividends, annual dividends, you know, that really adds up 10 years later. Like it, it makes a difference. And what I say to those VCs is, look, good luck trying to sell the company. If the common shares are worth zero, the you're going to have to negotiate with the founders, with the executive team, because they're not going to be motivated to sell. And what what inexperienced VCs don't understand, like I love alignment. Yes, I you know yes I want to have a little bit of downside protection. Okay, fine. But when when different classes of shareholders have wildly different financial incentives, bad things happen, and that goes on either extreme. In fact, I just saw a. a, a uh, an article on Hop on Hopin. Do you know Hopin? No, it was an no. English co- English that. company. They raised over a billion dollars, and they just sold last week for fifteen million. Wow! So they raised they raised a billion. But here's the thing: the entrepreneur in 2021 took a hundred and fifty million dollars off the table in a secondary. So the investors got zero. And the entrepreneur got 150 million. Amazing, amazing. Go ahead. No, Sorry. go ahead, Mark. No, I was just gonna say extremes on either end of the equation drive me nuts. Yeah, and I love your idea of alignment because what I'm seeing more and more now it are earnouts, right? The valuations when you sell the business are lower and then there's some kind of earnout. And what's the incentive for the founders when they stay to work on the earnout if they're not gonna get anything? Yeah, right. I want yeah. I want you to address one tool that a lot of people use now when they start to raise money is safes. Tell us what Ugh. safes are and is that a good idea or a bad idea in the beginning? Yeah. Well, a safe is a note and it basically it's typically a convertible note that says uh there you know we're going to borrow this money and hopefully there's going to be another financing event philosophically. And when that financing event happens, that that note will convert into preferred shares in the next round. Um, I, I've done a, a series of talks on this. I am not a fan of safes. And if it's under a million dollars, okay, fine. It's not that big a deal. But here's the issue. Let me tell you the pros and cons. The pros, if I'm an entrepreneur, speaking from an entrepreneur's point of view, is it's really cheap and inexpensive and fast and quick to do. And so it's easy. It's really easy to do a safe. And a lot of people think that that's the right thing to do. But let me tell you the con. So I'm a chess player. 
And chess players like to think three, four, five, six steps ahead. And if you're taking an earlier stage round, the thought is that most likely you're going to raise another round. And the question is, how do you put yourself in the position to be successful for the next round? And the problem with a safe is, look, if it's $500,000, it's probably not going to make a difference. But if it's millions of dollars, what happens is that the next investor, the new investor, they don't care about the pre-money. What they really care about is the post-money. When the whole transaction is over, what percentage of the equity do I have as a new investor? Well, a safe converts. So that conversion means that it's going to be dilutive to the new investor. It's going to be more expensive to the new investor, and their money is going to buy less. And what I have seen happen over and over again is, especially in these market conditions, is they just start layering safes one on top of another, and pretty soon you now have $1 million, $2 million, $3 million plus of safe notes, which means it makes it much harder for the new investor to invest. It means you got to raise more money at a higher valuation. The other thing is as an investor, like the elephant in the room, I would rather have the hard conversations up front. If there's a difficult conversation to be had about valuation, I'd rather know it. I'd rather have that conversation up front and not kick the can down the road. And the, the other thing too is as an investor, I get preferred shares. I like the benefits of preferred shares. I think I have a fiduciary responsibility to my LPs, to my investors, to protect our interests. And I think having preferred shares as a professional venture capitalist, different than an angel when it's your own money. But as a VC, I want the benefits of those preferred shares. One of the chapters in your book, Mark, is called Where Do Valuations Come From? And you just mentioned having the hard conversation about valuation. A lot of people don't know, well, where do I start? How do I value this thing? Well, are we t- <laughs> are we talking about venture capital or are we talking about selling your business? I mean, I guess both, right? Because in the beginning, how do you value it? And then how do you figure out the ultimate price to, to sell it for? All right. Well, there are two very different conversations. So this is art, not science. And, you know, the last few years before the crash, the valuations were the prevailing wisdom, the valuations were going higher and higher and higher. And then we're not tethered to any underlying economic reality. There was no revenue numbers. It was just, this is what the market will bear. But, but Mark, as a, as a business broker, I love that. I love when I could sell a business at, at 10 to 17 well, times ARR. I'm not sure well, it was fiscally prudent, but it was great. Selling a business, yes. Raising money, maybe. Yeah, probably so, not. look. I mean, look at all the companies that raised money in 2020, 2021 at much higher valuations, not tethered to underlying economic reality. Many of those companies are either struggling to raise another round 
or if they are able to raise another round, they're down rounds. And down rounds are brutal. If you've never lived through a down round, a down round means that whatever that high valuation is, that those shares get repriced back down to whatever the, the, the last round, the newest money. If the newest money is significantly lower, then that high valuation gets repriced. And it and it where does it come from? It comes from common shareholders. So if you're if you're a if you live through a down round, my joke, my partner Troy Hennikoff at Math Venture yeah, Partners. Troy's been, been on here. Love Troy. Great cyclist yeah, we could, too. Yeah, great cyclist. We we've been friends for years. So I first met Troy in 1999 uh, and 2000, early 2000. We invested in, in his company, Sure Payroll. He was the CEO. This was before the dot com crash. He loved us. The dot com crash happened. I led the I led the A round. He was very happy with me. I led the B round. The B round was a significant down round, and and he was less happy with me. <laughs> my, my 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 joke is, uh, you know, one of the the is he's still talking to me. <laughs> like, like we we've lived through thick and thin together. And you know you have a great partnership when you can endure some of life's struggles. But look, so like I said in the beginning, the only thing that matters is when there is an exit are the common shareholders in the money. And so the high valuation and that high valuation did not serve 99% of the companies that raised at a very high valuation as long as you don't have to raise another round, great, fantastic. But if you have to raise another round and you don't have the business to support it, that high valuation is going to come back and really bite you in the butt. You know, it's interesting. A lot of the founders want to go for high valuations because they want to give away, quote unquote, less of the money. So what do you say to that? Less, I'm sorry, less of the ownership of the company. Yeah, I think it's a very um, short-sighted. So yes, there is truth to that, that the higher the valuation, theoretically, the better, it, it looks better, you can stroke your ego a little bit. But the reality is, money is just money. And not all money is created equal. What you want are people that can help you grow your business, scale your business, who can be good partners, who you share values with who will be in the trenches with you. You know, I, I'll give you an example. Um, a recent example of Silicon Valley bank. For us, we had our capital and about uh, $2 million of our fund capital in Silicon Valley bank. And more importantly, about 50% of our portfolio companies had their money in, in the bank. And, when the crash happened, like you really, really get to know somebody on either extreme, like greed or fear, like you know, and either extreme brings out the best and worst of humanity. Absolutely. And and you know, and when the bank crash happened, I saw some amazing CEOs just courageous, doing the right things, really good communicators. 
same with VCs. I saw some VCs that were just like, like my people. I also saw some pretty bad behavior. I saw CEOs panicking. I saw almost catatonic in not knowing what to do. But more importantly, I saw VCs yelling and screaming and berating. Um, you know, like for me, we have LPs. We're just one step in the food chain. I had 99% of our LPs called us up and said, I know you're going through a tough time. How can I help? I had one LP call up screaming at the top of their lungs. I want my money back. <laughs> I went, yeah, me too. <laughs> like, exactly. I, yeah. Yeah. I, that would be nice. I would like that. And so my point, my point being is it's more than just the money. It's more than the valuation. This is a, when you take other people's money, you're taking their, um, you're taking their agenda and you're like, they're going to be in control of your business. And like, man, if you don't believe in them and trust them and want to be in the foxhole together with them, like, I don't care. It could be the, the, you know, the highest valuation in the world. If they tank your company, it's not, what's it worth? And I have dealt with being on the sell side and I represent usually the company, but I start working with the founders. I've seen really great investors and I've seen investors who got in the way of the sale and just really cared about them. But a lot right. of people at, go, go ahead. Well, it's like, I, I think of it like a zero sum game, right. right? There are some investors who just will manipulate deal docs and transactions to squeeze every penny out of it to the detriment of their fellow shareholders. And there's some investors who realize that their reputation, they're playing the long game and they realize they're going to be in business together. And the next time the entrepreneur uh, starts another business, they want to be invited into, they want to be invited back to the table. And so like you, re it's really important to figure out who these guys are. Absolutely. A lot of questions that I get asked when small business owners call me up is they say, when is the right time begin to begin the actual process of a sale? And of course, the natural answer would be, well, when you can get the most money and you're ready to leave. But what's the real answer that you describe in your book? Yeah, we have this concept called an annual exit talk. It's really interesting. Most CEOs are afraid and most boards of directors are afraid to have an uh, to talk about exits, CEOs think there's a stigma attached to it because if I talk about an exit, then my board members and investors are going to think, "Oh, my heart's not really in it. Like I'm ready to give up," and they're afraid they might get fired. And most of the time, very few boards have that conversation, and and we think it's the exact opposite. We think that. Every year, to take the stigma out of it, you should have a regularly scheduled, once a year, strategic conversation about the state of the business. And where are we? Are, you know, is it still growing? Do we still believe? Does it need more money? Like, what's the best home for our customers? Just if we were to have an exit, what would be, do you think it would be a strategic purchaser? Would it be a financial purchaser? Like, 
And talk about timing, because what most entrepreneurs don't really understand is when you take a VC's money, you're taking our time horizon, our time frame. Well, if you know the typical time frame for a VC is let's call it eight to ten years. And if it's private equity, it's like three to five years. But for venture capital, it's it's eight to ten years. And so if you if we make an investment and you're the very first investment in a brand new fund, we're like, yeah, fine, take your time, let's grow, like you know, invest. But if you're the last investment and it's, you know, it's approaching year 10 of a venture fund and our LPs are saying to us, hey, we want our money back. You said it was going to be eight to 10 years. It's year 10. And there's real pressure on us to start providing uh, liquidation back to our uh, proceeds back to our uh, LPs. Well, then we're under a lot of pressure. So it's really important to have that alignment conversation and that timing conversation with your board, it's also a great way to, to say, hey, look, we need more money. Are you guys in? Because if you're not in, maybe we should talk about uh, this is the time. And the other thing, too, is if you have multiple VCs, if you have multiple investors in a deal, oftentimes we don't talk between ourselves on timing. And we don't know you know, where the other fund is in their fund cycle and you know what their expectations are. The other thing that an annual exit talk does is you can be very thoughtful and intentional about who do you think would be the most likely acquirer? Because you could start to build relationships. As part of this book, we interviewed dozens and dozens of CEOs and bankers and M&A attorneys, but we also interviewed heads of corp dev at almost all the major tech companies. And we asked them the question, like, what do you wish CEOs knew uh, before they came to talk to you? And like, like we asked them, like, what made the best deals? What made your worst deals? And the theme, that was some of the patterns that came out of it is they like to buy companies from people they know. That people they trust, Absolutely. that people they have relationships with. Well, those relationships don't happen just because a banker knocks on your door. Like it takes years to build this trust. So if you can start to identify whether it's financial buyers or strategic buyers, and if it's a strategic buyer and build those relationships, build trust, you also can start to understand their business. Because in the book, we talk about FAIR, which is our acronym for what makes a good investment, a good transaction, which is fit, alignment, integration, and rationale. And the rationale, if you can nail the rationale of why one plus one equals 100, then that's how you get the best value for the company. We're talking with Mark Ackler, who's the co-author of a new book called Exit Right. We'll be right back. My work with thousands of small business owners over the last 20 years inspired me to write my next book on how to make changes. Well, that's not exactly true. More accurately, my frustration and the resulting challenges working with small business owners forced me to write this new book. Um, let me explain. I'm often asked by companies and small business owners that I don't know to help them. 
Typically, they're feeling stuck by a problem and their companies can't move forward. After analyzing the situation, we mutually decide on a go-forward strategy. I help them assemble a detailed plan to make any changes in the critical success factors and actions that need to be completed. They agree that taking these actions will help them solve their issue for their company and make them more money. And then almost nothing happens. Unfortunately, most small business owners implement a few easy steps, but never take the critical or difficult ones that could make a difference. This has long frustrated me since we worked really hard on putting together this plan, and at the beginning, we were both excited about the result. I wrote my new book, Change Masters, how to actually make the changes you already know you need to make to figure out why small business owners do not make the changes or take the actions that they know will help them reach their goals. Where is the gap between sincere intent to make these changes and the actions to actually do it? What holds most people back and keeps them stuck on the same path over and over again? Why are they still so comfortable in not making these changes and staying on a path that clearly doesn't work for them? One thing is it's not adding to their happiness and it's not adding to their feeling success. What steps do they need to take to slowly break free and start to make those changes today that will help them in the long run? In my new book, I reveal much of the psychological research around why change is just so hard for so many people and real life strategies that every small business owner can employ right now to make the changes they need to make in their companies to grow. So get my new book, Change Masters. Remember, I'm not trying to convince you to make a change, but rather help you make the changes you already know you need to take. Stick around to get your small business unstuck. More of Small Business Radio with Barry Moltz. I want to welcome back Mark Ackler. He's the author of a book called Exit Right, How to Sell Your Startup, Maximize Your Return, and Build Your Legacy. Mark, one of the things that you see a lot in sales transaction is that the price or the terms that are laid out in the term sheet or the letter of intent doesn't always mean that's the terms that the deal's going to get closed at. How do you make sure, because I always say, well, the most you're ever going to get for your money is what it says in the term sheet or the LOI. How do you make sure you preserve or maximize the value throughout the process and you get as close to what it says in the term sheet as it does in the purchase agreement? Yeah, that's a great question. And Barry, thanks. But and, before I answer that, like just one step before that, just philosophically, most companies want as simple a term sheet or LOI as possible. And most first-time entrepreneurs don't realize that there's a challenge there. And the challenge is deal docs get written by the larger company, by the purchaser. And the attorneys for the deal docs, if something is left unsaid in the um, the LOI, how are they going to interpret it? They're going to interpret it in the best interest of the larger company, of course. Their right? way. That's how they'll interpret it. Their way, right? And, and the, what most entrepreneurs don't realize is the minute you sign that term sheet, you lost 95% of your leverage. You got like most of your negotiating leverage is is over, and therefore we're actually big proponents of 
little bit longer term sheets and making sure that everything is covered like um, employment agreements. Because, you know, my co-author, Merritt, his company got purchased by uh, S.E. Johnson. And the attorneys, you know, it was a very simple term sheet. And the attorney said, yeah, we'll get to the employment agreements, you know, towards the end. You know, two days before the term sheet, uh, the deal was, the deal docs were done two, two days before the term sheet was supposed to, the deal was supposed to close. They, they presented the employment agreements and they were awful. I mean, like there's all sorts of problems. But here's the thing. The, there's so much momentum, right? Like your investors, your you're you eight know, and a half months your, pregnant. Your what are you going to do? Right. Like you just so so. Let's go to answer your question. Well, no, I want to. I, I really want to. I, I totally agree with you because five years ago, before I started selling companies, I was in the camp of let's just do a very simple term sheet. We'll deal with everything later. And that caused problems, exactly what you said. So now I'm like you. I'm in favor of actually a very detailed term sheet like, okay, is there going to be a networking capital calculation? And what is the definition of that? Is there going to be escrows? Is there going to be a non-compete? Let's talk about all this now because as you said, as soon as you sign that term sheet, you give away all your leverage. So I'm totally in favor of that. It takes a little bit longer, but at least I feel we have more of a chance of actually getting the deal done and not collapsing. Yeah. And by the way, the the I in fair, the integration, most people say, yeah, yeah, don't like that's the ugly stepchild of deals. <laughs> but yeah, like we'll, we'll deal with integration later. But here's the thing. If your economic, if a significant part of your economics are tethered to performance post transaction and the minute your transaction is done, all, you've lost all your decision making. So you like if it's reliant on integration with their sales team or uh, more programmers that you like, whatever resources you need, you may be on the hook for uh, you know for those milestones, but you may not be. In, you will not be in control of resource allocation. So integrate like an integration plan is essential up front. So let me backtrack here to, and Barry, I know we only have 30 minutes. No, we've already gone past that, but let's keep talking because I got so many more questions for you. And this is great stuff that I'm going to play this for every single one of my prospective sellers because I think they have to understand this kind of thing. And I'm going to buy your book for each one of them first and say, read Mark's books first. And if you agree with that approach, call me, I'll help you. (laughs) Thanks. So, so fair. Fit alignment integration rationale. So fit is cultural fit. Cultural fit is really important. Like sort of the poster child of what not to do was AOL Time Warner. One of the worst transactions ever. One of the biggest disasters ever in M&A. And part of it was, you know, this was New York suit and tie, 1990s legacy culture, very risk averse compared to AOL, high flying internet you know, blue jeans and t-shirts, cultural fit and cultural fit. Actually, if you could dig it down to the essence is how do decisions get made when there are no written rules? Like, you know, I'll go back to values and ethics like Wells Fargo 
selling, forcing people to, to do deals that they didn't want to do, you know, signing up people for credit cards or bank accounts they didn't want. Like, like how do you make decisions about short-term versus long-term? Invest, how do you invest? How do you allocate scarce resources? When you think culture, you think blue jeans and t-shirts versus suit and tie, but it's way deeper than that. It's, it, it's like, how do, how do decisions get made and what are our values? So cultural fit. The second piece of that is alignment. And here's the thing. It's not only alignment amongst all your key stakeholders. So if I'm a seller, making sure that my board of directors and my investors and my key executives, and not to forget your significant others, spouses. I've I've heard dozens and dozens of stories about how spouses had an oversized impact on the decision of when or how or how much to sell. Like that's you funny because I always ask the entrepreneur, so what does your spouse think very early in the process? Right. Of course. Of course. I mean I mean look, I put my wife through hell for the two first 10 years of our marriage as an entrepreneur. Like she has a say. She has it she has like it impacts her too. And so, so building alignment amongst your team and you, you actually threw out, I've seen this as well, where a VC board member goes rogue and tries to cut a deal around the CEO or, or negotiate with the bankers separate from the CEO. Bad behavior happens all the time. So alignment is really important, but alignment also on the buying side. So many rookie CEOs think, oh, I have a champion, whoever that champion is. And it's the champion's job to build alignment on their side of the table. It's my job to build alignment on my side, their job on their side. But I don't think so. There's certain things as a CEO you cannot outsource and assume, right? We all know what assume stands for. And as a CEO, I want to make sure that, yes, my champion, but I want to know that all the other key stakeholders are nodding their head and saying, yes, a lot of transactions fall apart, even Absolutely. after a term sheet. Absolutely. And they fall apart because there isn't alignment. The CEO is not on board or the CFO is not on board or the CEO is a champion, but the board of directors says no. Like alignment is really critical and you cannot assume that the other side is fully aligned. Yeah, we had a deal so, where we didn't we we went through term sheet and we still had not talked to the CEO. We're only talking to the champion and I'm like there's something wrong. We're never going right. to get this deal done if we don't sit down with the CEO and talk about how this is going to fit into their company and sure enough the deal fell apart. Exactly. Exactly. Alignment is really important. The next so Fit alignment integration. So I started talking about, look, the minute that deal's done, you've lost all control. So by the way, if the if the acquiring company, if it's a company, if the acquiring company or it's a private equity firm and interest rates go up and there's a lot of debt, there's a lot of pressure and they have to start cutting, where do they start cutting? The new guy. Like, like, right. They, like, like that's the first place CFO goes. They're not going to cut their core. They're going to cut, you know, the ancillary. So 
So making sure that the integration plan is understood and it's in writing. And if you need specific resources like people or sales integration or capital, like whatever the resources that are built in and part of that integration plan, that has to be put in writing because life changes. Not only does life, not only markets change, people change. A CEO can leave, a new CEO could come in and have a totally different uh, strategic you know, point of view. If it's not in writing, it's going to get cut. And by the way, if it gets cut and you have uh, you have a milestone that has real economic impact to you, sorry, Charlie. So, so I is integration. And then the most important is the R, which is rationale. And this is where most entrepreneurs fail. Most entrepreneurs, they just think it's about us. And they look at, you know, most transactions get done. You you even said it. Most transactions get done on a multiple of either uh, top line revenue or earnings, depends on the transaction. But looking at a multiple is looking backwards. It's like, this is what we've done in the past. And yes, we're going to give you a multiple for future revenue, but it's a backwards looking perspective. A rationale is looking forwards. The rationale is what happens when we put these two entities together? So let me give you an example. If I had a company that improved the retention rate of uh, shopping carts, so shopping cart abandonment, and we had a million dollars in revenue, and you gave us a 10x and a 10x multiple on a million dollars, you would say to yourself, yeah, that's awesome, $10 million, fantastic. Well, what if Amazon bought it? And what if you could improve the shopping cart abandonment rate on Amazon? What's that worth? A lot more than $10 million. A lot more than $10 million. That's my point, right? And so understanding the rationale. So like, my, one of my favorite things is retention. If you had a product that improved the retention rate of the much larger purchasing company's core business, what's that worth? What's it worth if you took your product and you put it into the sales team? Uh, you know, I, I'll give you a great example, a classic example of uh, Instagram and Facebook. When Facebook bought Instagram, people thought Mark Zuckerberg was nuts. Nuts. They thought, oh, my God, the guy's just crazy. Instagram had 40 employees, virtually no revenue, and they sold for just under a billion dollars. And everybody thought that that was the stupidest decision at the time. Turns out that they didn't understand the rationale. And there was two rationales. The first was, okay, fine. Instagram had this incredible traffic. If you put the Facebook sales engine and you you know sent that sales force out to sell that traffic, what what would happen? And of course, you know, like twenty three billion dollars of revenue a year. But more importantly, what people didn't understand is in that moment, I think it was twenty eleven, Facebook was more PC oriented and they weren't mobile. And Instagram was all mobile. 
And they, Mark Zuckerberg understood that the future was mobile and that he needed Instagram to move the organization to become the mobile strategy, the mobile face. And that's what happened. And, you know, and, and I think they stole uh, Instagram for a billion dollars. Right now in hindsight, so the, in hindsight, right. So, so the rationale is really, really important. And like, I don't know, I know we're pressing on time. I don't know if you want, I have another rationale story. That, no, I, that I wanted to get like. to a few other questions before I let you go, okay. because this entire process, Mark, is very difficult, you know, on the CEO. Cause I always tell him it's kind of like, you know, a colon, pre- preparing for a colonoscopy, right? If you're over 50, you know what it's really <laughs> like because there's so many people in the pro- that are in the process, the attorneys, the lawyers, the buyers, the sellers, the teams inside them that have all these different agendas and so many things that can get in the way of the transaction. I had one transaction held up because one of the investors had the same name as another foreign national on a watch list. I had one yeah. deal held up because the uh, longtime accountant said, well, I'm losing, I'm going to lose you as a client when you sell the business. So I need a $50,000 payment if you want to release any of the records. I had another <laughs> shareholder that said, I know you need 100% to approve this deal. I'm, I'm going to hold this up because I want to get more than my fair share. And I'm the last right. one that needs to approve this. So I see all sorts of things. How do you right. keep the CEO calm? Because I find during this process, I also act sometimes as part therapist. Oh, absolutely. It is devastating. This process is devastating. You know, how do you, how do you keep your equanimity? It's, it's. Especially when they're calling your baby ugly. Yeah. Right? Which is your business. it's, It's really, really hard. So first, it's really important to have trusted advisors. So hopefully that's a board member who somebody that you really trust inside and out. Maybe that is, maybe, you know, in Mert's case, um, I was his go-to, you know, I was the phone call at 10 o'clock in the morning, I'm sorry, at 10 o'clock in the evening, talking him off the ceiling when they were changing major deal terms at the last minute. You, You know, it really helps to have a trusted person to talk to. And and one is on business terms, but the other is just about life. So sometimes you can, maybe you're fortunate enough to have a significant other, a partner, a spouse who can be that person for you. Sometimes that's the case. Sometimes it's not the case. Sometimes your spouse actually piles on and makes, makes the stress more, makes the stress worse. Um, you know, every relationship is different, but the key is not to overreact, to stay calm, to, um, you know, the 24 hour rule, (laughs) you know, don't do not send the flaming email in the middle of the night, you know, just realize that shit is going to happen. Bad stuff happens. It's part of the journey. Stay calm. And know that when it's all said and done, you'll have a chance to re- to to process and to relax. Um, 
but it's really hard. It's yeah. incredibly stressful. Yeah, it's emotional. It, it's really, it, again, when I get involved, it's an incredibly emotional roller coaster for me, and I don't even own the company. So it's just, it's crazy. <laughs> the last question I want to ask you, and I think a lot of CEOs forget this, is how should you take care of the team in this entire process? I've had CEOs that, have just been incredible with their teams, making sure that they had jobs, giving them, one of my clients sold his company for $140 million. He gave million dollar bonuses to his top executives. So just really incredible. And some people say, well, it's not their company. They don't own it. I'm gonna make all decisions. I don't care what happens to them. What is the best way and why should the CEO take care of their team in this process? Well, you know, part of the title of the book is Legacy. And I'm not a, I'm a believer in, um, that the CEO, uh, should be a, a leader for everybody, uh, not themselves and not only themselves. And the question I ask CEOs is when this transaction is going to be over, will your employees come back to work for you in the next company? Will your investors want to invest in you in the next company? Will the leader of Corp Dev, who was at your this company, who then goes to the next company, will they want to buy your next company? Are your relationships going to be intact? Will your customers want to buy from you? Will your partners want to partner with you? I'm a huge believer in servant leadership and uh, and playing the long game. And so, you know, for those people who view life through the lens of, once again, being a zero-sum game, yeah. Good luck. I hope I never encounter you. I hope it, I, I, I hope I'm never in business with you. And if I am, you can guarantee I will never do it again. Right. And it doesn't mean there aren't tough choices, but I think you have to share the tough choices with your team. Yeah, absolutely. Of course. And man, there's tons of tough choices. There's like, there, it's not, <laughs> you, you know, if a deal is, I'm making this up a hundred million dollar transaction, it doesn't mean it's a hundred million dollars. It's like, who gets what? How much of it gets paid today? How much of it's in the future? How much of it's allocated to an employee bonus pool? How like there's all sorts of gray zones there. And you know, I would just say, you know, the the golden rule, do unto others like you would want to be done unto you. And that uh life is long. Most people don't realize, like most of us, you know, Barry, like you, I, I started four companies. I was a CEO four times and, uh, you, you know, your reputation really matters and, and, and it stays a long time. I always say you meet the same people on the way up as you do on the way down. So you better be nice <laughs> to everybody. That, Mark, I appreciate sure. you spending so much time with us. The title of the book is called Exit Right, How to Sell Your Startup, Maximize Your Return and Build Your Legacy. I know you can get this at where our books are sold, but where can people get in touch with you uh, online? Yeah, so uh, Exit Right is it's Amazon everywhere. And online, I'm on LinkedIn. And um, my email is uh, my name, markackler at gmail.com. And I'm always glad to help. I'm always talking to entrepreneurs. And anything I can do to help, I'm always glad to do it. Mark, thanks so much. And I want to thank everyone for joining this week's radio show. I got to thank our incredible staff, our booking producer, Sarah Schaffrin, our video and sound editor, Ethan Moltz, our marketing manager, Courtney Gilchrist. If you're serious about being more successful in 2023 or you're thinking about selling your business, give me a call. I've set up a private line, 773-837-8250 or email me at barry at Remember, 
Love everyone, trust a few, and paddle your own canoe. Have a profitable and passionate week. You can find Barry Moltz on the web at barrymoltz.com or more episodes of Small Business Radio at smallbizradioshow.com.